0: We are back that's right we are back um, if you've been with us uh, over the past several months we have been going through first and second Samuel and uh, last time we had an encounter where like where we were actually in like in scripture because um, our last encounter was was a Christmas party so like I feel like that technically like doesn't count you know what I mean uh, but uh, I mean it counts. I shouldn't say that. It counts. Um, But that was like December 13th, I think it was, Um, So or December 12th, December 12th. Uh, So we are um, jumping back, but really the last time we were in uh, 1st or 2nd Samuel was December, math, 6th, no, 5th, 5th, December 5th right? Uh, we were uh, So it's been well over a month since we have been uh, studying this book together. This is actually our first message. uh, This is our first message in 2 Samuel. If you were with us last time, you remember uh, at the end of 1 Samuel, just to kind of catch you up, uh, David uh, has finally become king, right? If you remember, he was on the run from Saul for several, several years, and uh, eventually Saul dies, and God's promise to David is fulfilled. David is now the king of Israel. And before we get to that, as you're kind of s- searching and flipping through to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to be in verse 1. Here's one thing. If you know me, you know that this is true. You know that I love sports, right? I, sports is, uh, it, it is it's something that I, I I greatly enjoy, but at the same time, it is something that brings me a lot of heartache. Uh, as, as a Cowboys fan, it's about this time of year every year where uh, I just expect my heart to be shattered into a million pieces. And uh, they are—God uh, is the same God, and the Cowboys are the same Cowboys. Uh, but, yeah, you didn't know this? Yeah, No. Uh, no, I love Jesus. Um, but, yeah, so, so yeah, that—so, uh, but sports, is, it's, just, it's such an amazing thing. Because one thing that I love about sports is that everyone has their opinion— Right. Everyone has their opinion, and not only do people have their opinions, but people will talk about their opinions and argue about their opinions until they are blue in the face. There are people right now, you can go on your TV, turn on ESPN, and there are people getting paid to talk about their opinions. They're getting paid to talk about their opinions. And there's nowhere is this more common than there is something called the GOAT conversation. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, the GOAT conversation, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. And every sport has their GOAT, right? Or every, really, everything has their GOAT, right? This is the greatest of all time. So when you talk about the greatest of all time of different sports, if I, was, if I were to ask you uh, who is the GOAT of football, some people would say Tom Brady. Some people would say Peyton Manning. Some people would say Barry Sanders or Lawrence Taylor or... Some of you who are just not old enough, that's okay. You would say Patrick Mahomes or whatever it may be. I think that the number, I think the number one area, though, that you see this debate and where people get the most passionate is when you talk about the goat of basketball, right? Now, I need you guys to hang with me, okay? Because I'm not going to tell you what you should think, all right? But this is, this is an argument that people have a lot. They talk about who is the greatest of all time when it comes to basketball. Some people will say Michael Jordan. Some people will say LeBron James. Some people will say Wilt Chamberlain or Steph Curry and so on, the, the conversation goes. Ultimately, here's this. Here's what I want us to get, understand. Everyone in here, when I say who is the goat of basketball or who is the goat of football or who is the goat of soccer, or who is the whatever, every, I can go around the room and all of us will give a variety of different answers. Right, all of us will give a variety of different answers. We may, and here's the thing: the ability for us, you just—you heard the commotion when I even brought the conversation up, right? You heard people being like, "Oh, huh, right." I was like, "Basketball," and Mr. J said, "Here's Michael Jordan," right? Like, like you hear it, right? But here's the thing that I've learned: no matter how hard we try, we will never get this room to agree. We'll never get this room to come to a consensus on who we think the goat is or whatever, or all these different things. We we came into this place with a bunch of different opinions. We will leave this place with a bunch of different opinions. And here's the thing. When it comes to sports, that is okay. That's what makes sports amazing. Right? That's what makes sports so much fun to talk about. But the sad reality is this. Is that if we were to talk about the idea of who is God... It's very, very likely that we have all come in with a variety of different opinions on who God is. But the sad truth and the sad thing that we must seek to avoid is we do not want to leave this place with all different opinions on who God is. Does this make sense? Hey, let's put the, like, the candy and stuff away because it's killing me. You're good. Right? We, we, we came in here with all these different opinions, but we have to make sure that there's one thing that we get right. If there's one thing we have to be on agreement on, it's this, is who is God? You see, it's okay for us to have differing opinions on sports and all these different things. It is not okay for us to have differing opinions on who God is. One of my favorite quotes ever is, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, if I can narrow down, if I can summarize the major problem with people today, this is both people who profess to be Christians and people who do not profess to be Christians. If I was to narrow it down to what is the main problem with people today, it would boil down to this, is that you could boil it down to this answer, is that we do not properly understand who God is. We do not properly understand who God is. And, we do, and when you do not properly know who God is, you cannot know properly who you are. Why? Because God is one who made you. If you don't know God, then you can't know yourself. And if you don't know God and you don't know yourself, then we should not be surprised when we look around our culture today and we just see people in mass confusion and mass chaos, and people who don't know who they are, they don't know where they should be, they don't know what they should be doing, and all of this stems, all sin, all of this stems from people who do not have an understanding of who God is. Now, we're in the first few weeks of 2024. I turned 30 on Saturday, which, (laughs) wow, I know, you're looking at a fossil right now, right? (laughs) <laughs> I don't you're like clapping I don't know if you're clapping like you made it you know like but right but we are at the beginning of a new year now I've never really been one who's super crazy about new year's resolutions however I will say this if there's one thing that I pray for you this year if there's one thing I pray for you this year I pray this that you would grow in your knowledge of who God is in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he actually talks about this. He says that there's one thing that he prays for. He prays that they would, that they would grow, they would be empowered to be able to understand the riches of God's love. That they could grow to understand the, the love of God which surpasses all understanding. See, our greatest need. You may think that your greatest need is this or your greatest need is that. But I would tell you this, that your greatest need is to know God more fully. When I say that, some of us may say, hey, like I I I, want to be clear that I I believe that you have an idea of who God is. You may know things about God. You may have somewhat of an understanding, but I, I think that there's one thing that's very important, and this is something that we neglect. There's one aspect of who God is that we neglect more than any other thing. It's God's holiness. That when I was go down the list and I say, describe God to me. Give me characteristics of God. We say, well, He is loving. He is merciful. He is just. He is this. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, how long would it take for us to get to the fact that God is holy? When we see these images of, uh, we see uh, Isaiah or John have these visions of the throne room of God and the, the, the angels and, the, and the, f- the four living creatures are around the throne of God and they're worshiping and they're crying out about who God is. They're not crying out love, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. What do they cry out? They cry out holy, holy, holy. So we have to ask this what is the significance of God's holiness? How does God's holiness impact everything that you and I do? And tonight, we're going to look at a passage. It's a passage that on the surface is very difficult to digest. There's a reason that we skipped to this passage. However, I believe that, w- that when we properly understand this passage, is one of the greatest passages in all of the Old and New Testament about God and His holiness holiness. Now, to give you a little bit of context of where we are, right? Uh, David has now become king. Now, when David becomes king, originally, uh, there's not there's not really u- unity on who the right king should be and all these different things. And uh, the first five chapters of 2 Samuel are actually uh, pretty bloody and uh, pretty violent. Uh, I encourage you to go back and read it. Um, but to this point, David has finally gotten to a point where he is the king over a united Israel. Finally, all of Israel is on the same page and to this point where we're at up to uh, chapter 6 is that David has been reigning in Hebron for seven years he's been reigning as king in Hebron for seven years now uh, some of you are like why Hebron well because eventually what you see is eventually uh, earlier in the fir- within the first five chapters he ends up conquering Jerusalem and then he establishes Jerusalem as the center of Israel as the capital city of Israel and in doing so, eventually, he decides to do something. He decides to take the Ark of the Covenant, if you guys remember that. Last time we saw the Ark was way back earlier in 1 Samuel. Actually, if you go from 1 Samuel, I think it was chapter 7, I think, when the Ark was returned by the Philistines. You guys remember that story? All right, The Philistines returned the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is not mentioned again until 2 Samuel chapter 6, which it ends up being about twenty years. So David decides that he wants to bring the ark and put it at the center of Israel once again. Now, uh, on the screen we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have 2 Samuel. I have you in 2 Samuel right now, but I want to read to you first Chronicles 13, 1 through 4 real quick, and then we'll jump into that. So uh 1 Chronicles 13 1 through 4 says this: David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in the lands of Israel, in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and the Levites and the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Now, so after 20 years of obscurity, David decides to bring the ark to usher God's presence back to the center of Israel. So that's where we're at. You with me? You rolling with me? All right, it's been been about a month or so, so you smelling what I'm stepping in? You good? Okay. All right, so if you would, 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you would stand with me as we read 2 Samuel chapter 6. I know, you just sat down, get the blood flowing. Got to keep you awake. Second Samuel chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bel Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a, on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. Which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died. There, there beside the ark. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. If you would just pray with me. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Father, we pray that you would magnify your word tonight, and that, Father, you would allow everything that I say to be uh, nothing but your words. Father, I thank you I praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, guys, go ahead and grab a seat. Now, there's a lot here. There's a lot in this story, and initially, we're probably caught by surprise by what happens here. This is not necessarily a super popular story that people are like, hey, let me show you who God is and we go to this passage, right? But I want us to see a few things tonight. The first thing I want us to see is this, good intentions. I want us to see good intentions. See, what Israel is seeking to do here is a good thing. What Israel is seeking to do here is a good thing. For those of you who, who, who were with us back in 2021, so now three years ago, we did a study in the book of Numbers. Do you guys remember this? For those of you who were here, we did a study in the book of Numbers. And in that, that was when the, the uh, people of Israel were wandering through the wilderness. And there was one, the God gave them a bunch of different instructions. But when they did this, one thing that we saw was that the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, so the Ark, the, the, the symbol of God's presence amongst his people, was to be at the center of the camp. When they moved, it was to be at the center. When they encamped, it was supposed to be at the center. It was the center of the Israelite camp. And this is where God's presence would reside amongst his people. If you were to read the descriptions of the Ark of the Covenant, you would get to ultimately it's a box, and the top of the, that is overlaid in gold, and the t- the lid, so to speak, is something called the mercy seat, and on the mercy seat, God, that God's presence would descend and reside over the mercy seat, and that is where God would speak to Moses, you would descend Onto the mercy seat. And this is where the presence of God would descend and rest amongst the midst of, in the midst of his people. When the temple is eventually built as a so, sort of a permanent tabernacle, when the temple is constructed by Solomon, we're going to see that the glory of God fills the temple so much that, that the people fell flat on their faces and the priests could not minister in the temple because God's presence was so overwhelming. Now, here's what I want you to know, first and foremost, that ever since the Garden of Eden, God's desire has always been to be present with his people. God's desire has always been to be present with his people. God's desire is not that he be distant from you. God's desire is not that you be distant from him. God's desire is that he would dwell with his people and be in fellowship with them. And David knows this, right? David knows this. David is zealous for God. He knows God's word, and he knows that it is wrong for the ark of the covenant, the ark of God, to be stored somewhere in a house for 20 years. He knows that's not where it belongs. He knows that the rightful place of the ark, the rightful place for God's presence is to be prominent in the center of his people. And this is something that I want you to see. When we talk about God's holiness, there's a few applications I want us to see. First thing is this, is that God's holiness demands he be at the center of your life. God's holiness, when you properly understand what it means for him to be holy, his holiness demands he be at the center of your life. I'll tell you this, you can tell a lot about what a person thinks about God simply by looking at the prominence he has in their life. You don't have to tell me what you think about God. I could watch you and tell you what you think about God. You see, when we say that God is holy, here's what we mean. When we say God is holy, we mean this. That God is absolutely, totally set apart and higher, greater, and more wonderful than anything else. He is totally pure, He's totally separate. He is perfect, and there is no one like him. When Moses is talking to God, and he asks God, who shall I say, when God sends, tells him to go to the Egyptians and say, let my people go, and God says, who shall I say sent me, what does God say? God says, tell them I am sent you. Why would he say this? Because all right, if God's gonna say, all right, God, for God to say that he is like anyone else would be, would be wrong. God is saying, I am like I am. There is no one like me. There is no one who compares to me. There is no one who can measure up. He is separate. He is different. There is no one like him. And his holiness, this, this, what makes God unique, what makes God holy, set apart, different, pure, perfect, permeates all that he is. Meaning this that his love is Holy. His mercy is holy. His wrath is holy. His justice is holy. His kindness is holy. And this is why when we say that God is holy, it means that he should have a place in our lives that nothing else does. You with me? God should have a place in your life that nothing else does. Think of the moments that we see God's glory and his holiness in Scripture. When you see God's holiness and his glory who revealed in scripture, this is the one that the angels hide their faces from. This is the one that hid Moses in the cleft of the rock so that he would not die because of the presence of God. This is the one that when Moses saw just a glimpse of his glory, it permanently changed the way that he looked. This is the God that spoke to Moses from the burning bush and said, Moses, take off your sandals, for where you stand is holy ground. This is the same God that when John saw a vision of the throne room of God, he couldn't even begin to describe what he was looking at. Both Ezekiel and John say that when God spoke It was all they could compare it to. They said it was like the sound of rushing waters. This is God. This is who we sing about. And for some reason, we think that an hour on Sunday and an hour on Tuesday is the right place he deserves. That the one who angels hide their faces from, we think we're giving him adequate presence in our life because we go to church for an hour. Here's, here we are reminded that because God is holy, He should have a seat in your heart that no one else has. So let me ask you a question. What does God have access to in your life that no one else does? What does God have access to in your life that no one else does? Is there anything? If God does not have unique access to parts of your life that no one else or nothing else has, then can you honestly say you regard him as holy? I would say no, you cannot. You see, David is seeking to put God at the forefront and at the center of Israel's life and worship because he knows that's where he belongs. Now, I want you to notice that this massive spectacle you see it in the passage. There's this massive spectacle that's happening here as the ark is being brought into Jerusalem. We have a military escort, but we have joyous worship. Listen to verse five. It says, "In David and all the house of Israel, were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals." What are they? They, they were celebrating. They were celebrating as God's presence was ushered into uh, into their midst. They celebrated. The presence of God was in their midst and they couldn't help but praise and worship. And here's the second thing that I want us to see about God's holiness. It's this, God's holiness urges his people to respond in worship. God's holiness urges his people to respond in worship. Now, we know obviously that worship is part of everything that you do, right? Worship is more than just music. So think so think of the way that you live. Think of the way that you live. When you think about the things that you do and when you think about the things that you don't do, can you say that it is an act of worship? Out of response to the holiness of God as revealed to you through the scriptures, as revealed to you through the gospel, and as revealed to you through your relationship with him. That everything that you do is out of response to the holiness of God. Because when we have a proper understanding of God's holiness, and we are reminded of his holiness every day, you cannot help but live a life of worship to him. It's the natural response of the Christian. Now, while worship is more than just music, I think we, sh- we see repeatedly in Scripture that music, singing, and rejoicing is the natural overflow of a person who is in all of the presence of God. Music absolutely has its place. Now, I want you to see how they worship. They play with instruments. They sing with their voices. I love 1 Chronicles 13, 8 says this. It says, and David and all of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all their might. Let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time in your Christian life when you have praised God with all your might? Has there ever been a time where you sang with all your might? Or did you sing with your hands in your pockets? Wondering when the worship leader is going to do something that impresses you. Or wondering when they're going to sing a song that you like. Has there ever been a time when you've when you focused on the words on the screen, or you focused on the God that you're singing to, and you just, out of, of all your might, worship Him, even if you don't know the words? Not talking about being caught up in the heap of emotions but out of a response to his goodness. See, who, what do we see about their worship? We see that it was joyful, it was exciting, it was engaging. Now, as we're reading this, we're reading this knowing what's about to happen. Knowing and that just a, couple, just a few verses, God is going to swiftly judge, and Uzzah will die. And we know that this is what's going to happen. But I want us to see this that the problem with their worship was not the spectacle. We see later that they will actually we'll, talk, we'll actually talk about this next week, when they actually try again. They try to bring the ark into Jerusalem again, but this time they do it correctly, and they have just as big of a spectacle, if not more, of a spectacle, than they did the first time, and we see that God is actually pleased with it. So here's the thing, is that we're often tempted to think that the problem with our worship today is that there's too much spectacle. That's honestly the criticism I hear most. Is that There's too much spectacle. We don't need all the instruments. We don't need all of these things. You see, the issue with the people here was not that they had too much outward spectacle. The problem is that it was all done with an improper understanding of God's holiness. That's the problem. That was the problem. See, when they gain a proper understanding of his holiness and his word, which we, see, which we will see next week, and they try it again, then God is pleased. Please know this, that the presence of lights and loud music in worship is not the problem. The problem is the indifference in the heart of the people. That's the problem. And when we think that lights and music and instruments will jar us out of our indifference, that's the problem. But when we use the lights and the music and all of these different things as an act of worshiping God and glorifying God with the talents that we have, there's nothing wrong with it. If there was, then why wouldn't God have judged them then? The pr- they, God does not judge them until someone d- disregards his holiness, and that's where there's a problem. So h- here's something I want you to know, and this convicts me. If your ability to worship God is connected to style or preference, then it's likely that you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping your preferences. And like we said earlier, God is holy. And because he is holy, no one deserves your worship. Not even your preferences. Here we see David and all of Israel have a very good intention. They have very good intentions. However, we're about to see that all of their good intentions will come to a screeching halt. And this is our next point. We see the first thing is good intentions. The second thing we see is grave ignorance. There comes a point in all of this parade... And all of this praise, where the oxen that are pulling the ark on a cart will stumble. They will stumble and begin to fall. Now, I want you to remember the significance of the ark. All right, this holy and sacred vessel was about to fall and, be, and potentially be desecrated by falling into the mud. So Uzzah, Uzzah was a descendant of the tribe of Levi. Uzzah was one of the the priestly tribe. Uzzah was also something called a Kohathite. If you read earlier in uh, in your Old Testament, you see that of the tribe of Levi, the Kohathites were the ones who were responsible for taking care of the ark. They had one job. Take care of the ark. Make sure that it's taken care of. Make sure that it's carried correctly. All of these different things. So Uzzah seeing the ark about to fall, the the symbol of God's presence amongst his people, about to fall. And what does he do? He reaches out to catch it. As it does what anyone would probably have done in this situation. To be honest, I probably would have done the same thing. He instinctively reaches out to catch the ark, and upon doing so, God strikes him dead. Now, at first we read this, and we're just overwhelmed by what we just read, right? We read this and we're like, God, why would you do this? Why would God do this? Why would God kill a man who, out of good intentions, was simply trying to preserve the ark, right? We see an example here of God acting swiftly and definitively in his judgment, Why would God kill Uzzah? All Uzzah was trying to do was was, was save the ark. All Uzzah was trying to do was save the ark from falling. Is this such a bad thing? Here's the thing. The problem is that there was one rule that Kohathite children were raised to know. Numbers 4.15. They were raised to know this. You never touch the ark. That was the rule, Numbers four fifteen. God says this, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. But naturally, you may be questioning this. You may ask, but but as I was trying to be helpful, right? What was he supposed to do? Just let the ark fall? And I will, I would answer your question with another with this. No, he is not supposed to let the ark fall. He was to never transport the ark on an ox cart. That's the problem. See, if you go back to Exodus 25 and Numbers 4, where God gives specific instructions for the construction and the transportation of the ark, you will see that the ark was only supposed to be carried one way, by poles that ran along the side of it, and it was to be carried by the priests. It was to never be put on an ox cart. That is the problem. See, this is something that Uzzah would have been raised to know. He would have been raised to know this. This was the one law that every Levite, every Kohathite priest would have had engraved into their memory from the time they were a little child how to take care of the ark. Now, let me ask you a question. When did Uzzah first sin? Did Uzzah sin when he grabbed the ark or did he sin when he put the ark on a cart? Ultimately, both instances were manifestations or they were, they, were, they were examples of the same sin. Uzzah treated the ark of God as something common rather than something holy. That's the problem. See, if he wouldn't have put it on a cart, the ox would have never stumbled and he would have never had a problem. If he would have carried it the way he was supposed to carry it, it wouldn't have been a problem. But because he treated the holiness of God as common... He didn't think he needed to put it the way that it needed to be put. He didn't think it was a big deal if he reached out and grabbed it. You see, it wasn't strictly what Uzzah did that condemned him. It was his attitude towards God and his holiness that revealed itself in the way he acted. And this is important for us. When we view God, and we view God's holiness as something that is common, we are already off on the wrong foot. When was the last time before praying you took a moment to just think about who you're about to speak to? Just took a moment. I heard a quote the other day. I'm, I'm going to butcher it. But it says the, the sun can burn your eyes out from, from millions of miles away. And you expect to casually stroll into the presence of its creator. Like, do we, do, we, do we lose sight of who our God is? See, it wasn't simply the cart. It wasn't simply the action of touching the ark. It was that Uzzah did not have a proper view of God's holiness and his sinfulness. This is why Uzzah died. Not because he made an honest mistake in the heat of the moment. You see, Uzzah thought that the dirt would desecrate the ark. He thought it would desecrate the holy vessel of God. But I want you to listen. I love how R.C. Sproul puts this. I want you to listen. R.C. Sproul says this. He goes, the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. There was nothing about the earth that would desecrate the throne of God. The earth was lying there on the ground, doing what God has called earth to, be, to do, being dirt, turning to dust when it's dry and turning to mud when it's mixed with water. It obeys the laws of God day in and day out, doing exactly what dirt is supposed to do. There's nothing defiling about the earth. It was the hand of man that God said, I don't want this on my throne. You see, Uzzah was guilty of what we are all guilty of. It was this, having too low a view of God and too high a view of himself. When you neglect to remember the holiness of God, you will think of God far too low and you will think of yourself far too high. Which brings us to another thing. We talk about God's holiness. What, what we, how do we respond to God's holiness? It's this God's holiness demands obedience. God's holiness demands we obey. When you read your Old Testament, you'll see that God warned the priests that if they touched the ark, they would die. So this should not have been a surprise. This should not have been a surprise. But when we think of God as common, when we think of God as less than holy, it will first be revealed in our lack of obedience. When you, if, when you think that when you don't regard God as holy, it is first going to be revealed in your lack of obedience to his commands. We see this all the time. We see this all the time in the church where there are things that God's word clearly says. And we will either ignore it or we'll try to explain it and say, well, that's not what God meant. Right, God's word, and because we do not view him as holy and as sacred and as set apart, we try to, oh, we try to set ourselves above scripture and say, oh, I don't need to worry about that. See, when you have a proper view of God and his holiness, every word that comes from him you hold as precious and as of the utmost importance. Every word you cling to because you know it comes from the mouth of a holy God. See, before sin ever takes place, the sinner must first loosen his grip on the holiness of God, and the rest will take care of itself. If you want to know where all sin starts, it starts with that. If you go back to your Old Testament, if you go back to Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, I don't have the verses up on the screen, but all throughout the creation account, it says the Lord God, right? The Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. And then when the serpent comes into the picture and he speaks to Eve, what does he do? The first thing he do, he does not say the Lord God, what he, says. he goes, did God really say? Now it's extremely subtle. But what you see is this, is that the first thing that had to take place before Eve could sin against God was she had to have her view of God lessened. Listen to this quote from your boy, A.W. Tozer. It says, Wrong ideas about God are not only the foundation from which polluted waters of idolatry flow. They are themselves idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they are true. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. See, everyone in this room, including myself, struggles with this sin. We all struggle with sin in general. Scripture says this. If anyone says that he uh, is without sin, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him, 1 John. All of us struggle with sin. I want you to think about this. Whatever that sin is that you wrestle with on a regular basis, you could think about it. Everyone in this room, you could think about what that sin is. You know what that sin is. I want you to know that the first step to overcoming that sin is not all these different things that we may say. The first step to overcoming that sin is have a higher view of God. Have a higher view of God and his holiness. Because when you start to see that God is so holy that he deserves my obedience, now you're on the right track. But until you have a view of God who is worthy of your obedience, then you'll never have any motivation to do anything about your sin. So we see a good we see good intentions, grave ignorance. The last thing we see is gracious invitation. 2 Samuel 6, 9 through eleven says this. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. Understandably so. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed Edom the Gittite and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now I want you to see what happens, right? David is fearful. David's afraid. This ark, that God just killed a man for touching it, was supposed to come to Jerusalem, where David was. And David is afraid. He can't conceive how the ark could possibly come to him He says, how could the ark come to me? How can the ark of the Lord come to me? That's what he says. And this is the dilemma that each and every person finds themselves facing. How could God ever come to me? That's where it all lies. How could God, this holy, perfect, set apart, just God ever come to you? We're faced with this reality of God's holiness and the truth of our sinfulness. The only response we could ever have is fear and questioning. How could God ever come to me? Now we're gonna see, we're gonna continue this story next week when we look at David and the people correct their errors and, and move forward, but I want you to keep this in mind. The dilemma, I want you to keep in mind this dilemma and this question. How could God ever come near to me? Now, I want you to go with me. If you have your Bibles, flip to Mark 5, and then we're almost done. Mark 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 24. Remember this question How could the Lord ever come to me? Remember what we just read. A man d- did not have a high view of God's holiness, reached out, touches the ark, drops dead. I want, you re- I want you to read with me this story in Mark 5. It's talking about Jesus. It says, And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, it was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now I want you to picture this scene with me. This woman has been suffering for years. She's been suffering for years of a discharge of blood. Because of this, she would be ceremonially according to the Jewish law. She would be unclean. She could not be in the presence of a man She could not be in the presence of anybody, really. For 12 years, she was alone. She had suffered under many physicians. Most likely, people believe that she was taken advantage of because there was nothing that she could provide. There was nothing she could do. And she heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up and touched him. Touched the hem of his garment. Now, the hem of the of the garment, what this means is that for a rabbi, they would have a garment that they would wear, and on the end of this garment would be these tassels. And as Jesus was walking, they would have been by on they would be basically almost dragging on the ground. Which means this that this woman fought through these crowds and crawled up on her hands and knees to touch Jesus. She's ceremonially unclean. She is defiled and is living in shame due to her condition. And she crawls up and she touches Jesus. Now, think about this. Think of Uzzah. Think this. Uzzah touched the ark of God and was struck dead. This woman touched God himself and was cleaned. How does that work? How is it that Uzzah could touch the ark and be struck dead? This woman could touch God in the flesh and be healed. What's the difference? Jesus is the difference. You see, when we approach God with humility and in faith in the saving work of Jesus on our behalf, when we approach God through Jesus, knowing what he can do, knowing who he is in light of who we are, we come to God through Jesus. We do not receive judgment like Uzzah. We receive healing like this woman. See, as a sin condemned him when he approached God the wrong way, this woman's sin was cleansed when she approached the right way. So let me ask you a question How are you currently approaching Jesus? You see, the beauty of the gospel is this that which was unapproachable has become approachable. Because Jesus lived a perfect life, never sinned once, took your sin and my sin upon himself on the cross, putting to death our sin, putting to death our shame, and because of that, we now, he rose again three days later, signifying that his sacrifice on your behalf and on my behalf was accepted by God the Father. Because of this, I can approach him unashamed, knowing that my sin has been taken care of, and that one day, this holy God, who angels hide their face from, Scripture says I will get to look at him face to face because Jesus has taken my sin from me. When Jesus died on the cross the veil was torn meaning there's no separation and Jesus made a way for us to come to the Father without fear without fear of judgment without fear of what will happen and because of this even when I, on the days where I do not have a proper view of God I know that his grace is sufficient for me My relationship with God is not based on the fact that I have a proper view of of His holiness because I'll never be able to truly acknowledge His holiness for what it actually is. But because of but, what this means is that I can worship Him for what I know of Him and because of the grace of God, He covers the rest. But I want you to know that if you do not have a saving relationship with God through Jesus, if you have never prayed that Jesus, that Jesus, that God forgive you of your sins, and you believe and trust that Jesus took your sins on the cross, well, I want you to know that in this story you are Uzza, seeking to approach God, neglecting just how holy He is and how sinful you are. I want you to know that you don't, you can leave this place tonight. Like the woman healed rather than like Uzzah judged.